rock and roll. But if you taste like pine, you like cider, not wine, then you're very good thing to do. Welcome back to the Advent Calendar House, a salute to all holiday specials, but mostly the Christmas ones. Today we're talking about the 1977 Jim Henson special, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I'm excited this one's a favorite of mine. I am Stoat who looks like a bear, dresses like a pinball wizard, and sounds like he ate Cookie Monster Mike Westfall. And joining me for this gift of the Muppet Magi is a snake who can play bass guitar despite no one around her thinking that's amazing, Emily Rowley. Hey, Emily. Hello. Uh, Thanks for coming back. I'm so glad you're here for this one because this special is the reason I know you. Oh, is that why you know New Progressive Boing back in the uh, early days of the internet? Yes. (laughs) You wrote about this years ago. I found a link Googling for Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, loved it, joined the forums, and that's where I spent the entirety of my mid-twenties. Wow. I went back and tried to reread that maybe, I don't know, even how long ago it was, and it was just like a cringe fest of dated wrestling references. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't get through it. <laughs> I, I mean, we were different people, what, like 15 years ago. I was an entirely different human. I can't believe that we have been friends for 15 years. Yep. Or that the internet has even existed for 15 years. I feel like it just started a couple of weeks ago. I know. And then Twitter started and ruined it. Yeah, well. <laughs> Be the change you want to see in your Twitter feed. But. I thank Emma and Otter every year for our friendship. Um, Aw. Now, do you remember watching this for the first time? Do you Like, how old you were and everything? I actually don't. I was reading up on it prior to this to try to figure out what, like, how I was familiar with it prior to me writing about it back in, what, 04, 05? 03. Um... Oh gosh, we are, <laughs> we are ancient, Michael. I know. <laughs> um, and I can't remember exactly. Like, I don't know that it was fully on my radar. Like, as a young kid, in the way that some of the other specials that you've done on your podcast have been, I know I saw in the Wikipedia article that it aired on Nickelodeon at some point. Mm-hmm. I feel like that has to be where I picked it up. That is exactly where I saw it for the first time at some point in my teens when Nickelodeon was showing a bunch of Muppet stuff. Uh, and it ran it ran both the Muppet Show and Muppet Babies reruns, and that's where I first saw Hey Cinderella and the Muppet Musicians of Bremen. Uh, and then I remember, I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I remember catching it in the middle while Emmett's mother is singing When the River Meets the Sea, and I stopped and went, wait a minute, I know that song. That's on the John Denver and the Muppets album. <laughs> Good deal. Which we also talked about earlier this season. But um little background for the unfamiliar. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas uh, premiered on HBO on December 17th, 1977. It's based on a book by Russell Hoban and illustrated by his wife Lillian, published... In 1971, and apparently later it was adapted from this special into a stage play, debuting in 2008, which includes a mixture of live actors in costume and actual Henson Company puppets, including, if I recall correctly, one of your favorite characters, Doc Bullfrog, is a puppet in this stage play. Ah, that would be so awesome. He he really is. Like, he's my favorite part of the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) So we were both introduced to this at the same time, which means we both had Kermit intact for this one. Uh, He narrates this. Kermit did a lot, did uh, did a lot of in this time frame. But uh, the original cut of the special is another victim of Disney's acquisition of the Muppets because tried to get it on DVD afterwards and no Kermit at all. Uh, And the only version you could watch of this had no Kermit bookending the story narrating it unless you had a VHS or I don't know. Yeah. Like um, early prints of the DVD, because it's what I screen capped when I wrote that post back then had the Kermit parts in it because I remember including him in, in my write up. Okay. Um, so I definitely owned a copy that was not a VHS, but it has been lost to time or a breakup perhaps. Mm-hmm. 
because the version I have now is is sadly Kermit free. Oh no. <laughs> well here <laughs> I know. Here there are actually five different cuts of this special. I found out. Oh, the geez. original edit ran in seventy seven and then the one I'm most familiar with, because that's the one that ran on Nickelodeon later, was apparently an edit from nineteen eighty that aired on ABC. And that's the one that made it on VHS. So this is the edit I think most of us have fun memories about. But right. and it's a lot of little things like fade outs because they now have to factor in commercials now that it's on ABC instead of HBO. But there's that. Uh, and they also shorten When the River Meets the Sea, but add verses to Ain't No Hole in the Washtub. <laughs> Need a little more of that in our life. Uh, but then in 1996, that's when they start cutting out Kermit and making a few other edits. And then the DVD that came out in 2005 is post-Disney acquisition. That's when they just strip Kermit entirely out of it. Uh, and then I liken that to, remember when WWE first changed their name and ran the slogan, get the F out? <laughs> yes. Same thing here, but the F is for frog. <laughs> uh, and then finally, there was one last version in 2015 that ABC Family aired. It was remastered in widescreen. I have not seen this, but they bring Kermit back, but only in the beginning and the end. The little parts where we hear his voice in the middle just to set the scene after a commercial break are not there. That's an odd choice. I guess they didn't want to have to pay him extra. <laughs> Perhaps not. But I think this version that just came out in 2017, which was the 40th anniversary of this, they bring Kermit back in the home video version. I believe that is what's currently on iTunes. So, Oh, nice. If you guys need Em and Otter with Kermit in your lives like I do, it's on iTunes or other means that I've found. You can find with a little clever Googling. <laughs> uh, and then the last few home releases came with this outtake reel that randomly went viral in May of last year. Have you seen this? I did. I actually just rewatched it this evening oh, in preparation for this because, <laughs> like, I feel like when I first watched it, I was like, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. So I rewatched it so I could properly rant about it. But it's actually pretty charming. One second watch. It's just so much fun to watch. Um, you have Evan and his mother outside a music shop is the true heroes of this special. The River Bottom Gang <laughs> are causing chaos inside and the drum rolls out the door. So you have every take of this drum trying to roll out, but they have to get this drum rolling out the door perfectly. And just this part took dozens of takes to get right. And this reel just shows all of them. Uh, but it's like a very unique joy to watch because you have Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson staying in character, saying things like, What the hell was that? Sweet Jesus! <laughs> uh, and of note, I said Frank Oz was standing there to do the actual Muppetry of Alice Otter. I didn't pick up on that until another watch through, but the voice we hear in the special is added in post. It's performed by Marilyn Sokol, who's worked with Jim Henson a few times. She was Betty Lou on Sesame Street for a few appearances. Uh, she's a bag lady in Producers, if you've seen that. But Yeah, and I think it was that discrepancy. Like, Frank Oz doing the voice is why initially I really, I didn't like that outtake reel because I found it so okay. off-putting. Because the voice of Ma Otter is so, like... Though she is not a stranger to Henson production, like it's not one of the mm -hmm. like the guys that you know from across the board, and it's she has such a you know warm mothery tone, and it's not Frank Oz doing that Frank Oz thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Right down to the at one point he does his sort of double take sound. There's like a hubba which yeah. I associate with Grover, <laughs> but. And it's not a Grover voice. It's not that grovelly, but it's close enough that it's the high-pitched Frank Oz doing a female voice. But Exactly, yeah. All right, let's dive in. We open with Kermit riding a bicycle along a country road, which I feel like this had to be one of Jim Henson's favorite tricks because they keep going back to Kermit on the bike. <laughs> Kermit on a bike is so good, though. It is. It's it's. It's just a wonderful achievement if you stop to think about it. But this was the second time we've seen it on screen. Uh, so because this is before the Muppet movie, but apparently 
they did it the first time. And the pilot for The Muppet Show, The Muppet's Valentine Show, during Kermit's performance of Froggy Went a Courtin'. <laughs> and in both that and here, he crashes into something and falls off his bike. Hi, all. This is Kermit the Frog, and I'm here to tell you the story about Emmett Otter's... <laughs> That's uh, uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. That's another trope that we don't see later in the movies, but they do it. It's almost identical here if you watch them both. Right. And like you mentioned it being such an achievement and it does look completely seamless, like the bike riding and the fly Mm -hmm. over the handlebars, which is amazing not to jump too far ahead because some of the puppetry in this is sort of off-puttingly bad (laughs) compared to what you're used to. Like, um, I mean, they do a lot of marionette work, which is atypical for like the Muppet show or what have you. And it's just like, whoa, that's a little shaky. (laughs) Yeah. I I think we have to attribute a lot of that marionette that's coming later to the set. Well, you know what? No, before we get into that, we got to, we have to introduce the nightmare gang because they start driving up to Kermit As he's trying to set the stage for us, he crashes very conveniently into a sign that points to Frogtown Hollow, the setting of our story. But then we have to establish the Riverbottom gang as our bad guys here. So let's take a look at the individual members of the band. We have Chuck the Leader, who looks like a bear, but he's a stoat. I just learned that today. I thought Chuck was a bear for the entirety of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Frank Oz doing his Cookie Monster voice, and he's wearing sunglasses. I sound like a runway commentator. Chuck is dressed in a jean jacket with the sleeves ripped off, a rainbow patch in his right breast pocket. But he plays the keyboard and is the understood muscle of the band. We never see him actually do anything, but he's intimidating enough that the rest of the gang just does whatever he says. Hey. Yeah, Chuck? I'm hungry. Hey, everybody, Chuck's hungry! No, I'm not hungry. I'm hungry. Chuck, Chuck. Now, yeah, he's the Scott Farkas character. Yes. Oh, that's a perfect description. (laughs) (laughs) And though I ragged on myself for making dated wrestling references, he really does look like Triple H. He does. And he's got the grovel. I mean, if Triple H had a Muppet voice, he would have a Cookie Monster Muppet voice. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. No, absolutely. Uh, we have Stanley Weasel on lead vocals and guitar, played by Jerry Nelson doing his Neil Young impression. And then we have Fred Lizard on drums, very clearly played by Richard Hunt, because he sounds like Scooter with a Brooklyn accent. Go. It ain't even height. They didn't want these things to roll. They should have made them square. And rocking in a really cool fringe jacket. Yes, between that fringe jacket and then Stanley's wearing a rainbow striped shirt and a trench coat and like a purple newsboy cat. I'm not sure, but I think Fred kind of leans toward the most 1978 fashion out of everyone here. Yes, although, uh, yeah, the weasel looks like he's straight out of the electric company. All he's missing is suspenders. Uh, And then we have a snake that's apparently named Howard Snake, uh, who, as mentioned, can play the bass. And that's Jim Henson's voice. Get off my shoulder. Uh, I'm going, I'm going. Jeez, a fellow should be grateful he's got shoulders. But there's a note on the Muppet wiki. Dabs of hot glue coating the Muppet's fabric were used to give Howard his scaly look. So now you know how to make a snake Muppet. Okay. And finally, the most useless but arguably the most fondly remembered member of the Riverbottom Nightmare Band is a pop-eyed catfish who lives in a bucket of water and just hangs around with the rest of the gang and does nothing. He's played by Dave Goles. Doesn't play an instrument. He just kind of swims around in the giant fish tank like a go-go dancer in the background. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're referred to as hooligans, but you have to admire Chuck for just... Keeping up with the logistics of dragging a fish around in a bucket in wintertime. Yeah, that, that that never does freeze, does it? Because he shows up later when they're on snowmobiles and everything. Right, and he just apparently has a pool in the back of Chuck's convertible. Yep. Make sure it's got warm water in it at all times. 
Yeah, he's he's a solid friend. Hey, all right. Good work, Chuck. Uh, but it's the catfish here who makes it a point to steal Kermit's scarf uh, at the beginning with a fishing rod. The catfish has a fishing rod. Hey, Chucko, you see anything you like? How about the scarf? You got it! Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. And also, later while in their car, he spits water in someone's face, so I guess he's not completely useless. Just when it's time to play in the band. Uh, so that's the gang, and then we he- we get our title over an establishing shot of this gorgeous set of Frogtown Hollow. Uh, yes. And they usually do these spectacularly done sets for Muppet things. but They had to build this, and it's just gorgeous. I want a vacation there. The thing that I love is, like, the whole special is very out of time. Mm-hmm. I, you touched on the nightmare being, they look very 70s, but other characters look very not of the 70s, not even of the 20th century. And, you know, Frogtown Hollow looks like Walton's Mountain. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Uh, I have a couple of quotes on the set design here because it's got a multi-layered depth to it. That we're seeing for the first time, uh, at least from a Jim Henson production goes. So from Jim Henson himself, he explains, We had floors in the interiors that we could take a wide-angle shot with characters coming up through holes in the floor. Or we'd have to cut into the set and remove the floor and have the characters moving through space in waste shots. That was the most elaborate production we had gotten into at that point. We'd have a whole set in three dimensions rigged so we could pop parts and come out through the openings, which is really time-consuming. But the logistics of that just blows my mind that they had to think of all that, but they made it work. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and it's clear that they have the full set instead of just like the typical platform that you're used to. Right. Usually you just see, well, with the Muppet Show, they have the luxury of like, oh, this is a stage performance. So here's the stage and here's a backdrop that looks clearly like a backdrop that you would see on a stage as opposed to this is this looks and feels like a real place. Right. Exactly. Uh, And then more recently in 2011, here's a quote from Dave Goals saying that Emin Otter was in his top three projects of all time. I'm guessing Muppet Christmas Carol's on that list, but he says, I love the feeling of that Emmett Otter world. We built a 55-foot-long river that was about 10 feet wide and went all the way across the stage, and they built a radio control rowboat for Emmett. It was so lovely and lyrical to see Emmett rowing his mom down the river. The idea that there was life along the river and that it was all interconnected was a great metaphor for people. I didn't even think about the river part of this whole equation of them having to build that. Like I said, this felt like a real place. So for all I knew, I thought that it was a real river until now. Yeah. I'm like, I'm watching it again as you talk about it and not to repeat what we said earlier, but it's completely seamless. Like as like they're puppeting the two otters while the rowboat moves down the river that is in a set. Like it's actually, it is pretty amazing to watch. Even though I dogged on some of the the puppetry earlier. That's all right. We're going to do it again soon when we get to it. Because oh, yeah. No, I've, I've got other complaints. <laughs> but, but along the river, we meet Emmett and his ma, Alice, delivering laundry, which he washes for whoever will pay her to do it, including the pompous Gretchen Fox, who doesn't even pay her, alleging she's late in delivering. And we quickly establish... Alice Otter is a widow whose husband was a snake oil salesman who didn't leave them much because, as Pa put it, There just aren't enough people who want to oil a snake. (laughs) Such a cute joke. (laughs) So to get by, she's doing laundry for uppity woodland critters, and Emmett takes on various odd jobs with his buddy Wendell Porcupine. And that's the voice of Dave Goles doing a voice that sounds like Beauregard the janitors. Guess what? Old Lady Possum will give me 50 cents if I mend her fence. 50 cents? Good deal. But Wendell actually came first, I found out. Beauregard didn't show up on The Muppet Show until the next year. And then according to the Book of Muppets and Men, it's called, he based Beauregard's voice and personality on this porcupine out of nowhere. That's why Wendell seems so familiar. 
I was trying to place it. Yes. So he's prototype Beauregard the janitor, everyone, and personality and everything comes with it. We also quickly establish Emmett and his mother are very musically inclined singing a song called The One Bathing Suit on their way to Waterville to deliver the laundry. Even so it was her bathing suit that made her famous. It was almost heaven sent. Many times when it was drying on the line, a tourist would mistake it for a circus tent. And the aforementioned ain't no hole in the washtub. Your nails won't break and your toes won't stub. You never get a fever when there ain't no hole in the washtub. Foreshadowing. Uh, One bathing suit is a fun little ditty about their apparently incredibly fat otter relative. That's what I love. (laughs) I saw that some of, I don't know if all of them, but some of the songs were done by Paul Williams. Do you know which ones? I think it's all Paul Williams here. Oh, okay. Uh, who wrote many popular award-winning songs throughout the 70s, but none for me as impactful as Rainbow Connection. Uh, Absolutely. But you'll have people saying, oh, but these three number one hits for the Carpenters. Nope, Kermit. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I was surprised. I mean, I don't know why I was surprised to learn that they were all original songs because they... A lot of them, especially something like Hole in the Wash Tub or a couple of them that we'll talk about further in, like they, they do seem like just old time standards that the folks would just pass down. Absolutely, they feel like that. I was surprised that, but it said all music written by Paul Williams. Every single song had his credit on it, whether it's the music or not. But these could have, these feel like they may as well have been around for a hundred years. Yeah, absolutely. The following morning, Emmett accompanies Wendell to go rebuild a broken fence for a shiny quarter each. And here is where Wendell asks Emmett if he's going to enter the first annual Waterville Christmas Talent Contest. And I put that in quotes in my notes because I had an old news director who stood firm in insisting we never use the phrase first annual. A thing can't be annual until it's done at least two years in a row. Until then, this is just the first Waterville Christmas Talent Contest. That's that's a very solid point. <laughs> it is a solid point, but I digress. The more important thing about the first Waterville Christmas Talent Contest is the grand prize of $50. That's 100 times the money they're splitting to mend this fence. That is, I mean, like when you establish how, again, because the entire special seems out of time, they're getting such like small piecemeal bits of money for their tasks. Like $50 is either a completely normal sum of money for the time or a huge amount of money. Right. It's really hard to nail down the woodland economy here. Right. But but they're really excited about $50. Well, Emmett immediately thinks of using the prize money if he wins to buy his ma a proper present, something he's never been able to do before. And his thoughts turn to a used piano, because they used to have one and they had to sell it after Pa died to make ends meet. Emily, do you remember the first thing you ever bought either of your parents for Christmas? Not made, bought with money you earned. Um, well, I don't know if it was money I earned, but I do remember the first thing that I specifically picked out. Um, I don't know how old I would have been. Pretty young. Uh, I would say like the 6 to 10 range. Mm-hmm. But uh, One of my uncles took me to a local drugstore where all the good presents are. Oh, yes. <laughs> and just completely on my own, with no prompting, I picked out a door harp in the shape of a Christmas tree and decided that that is what I wanted to give that to my mom. So he got it for me, and that's what I gave her, and to this day, she still uses it every Christmas. Aww. I bought my mom a nutcracker, which she loves, but I remember immediately internally regretting it, thinking, it's Christmas Day, we're about to put that away for a whole year. <laughs> we don't even crack nuts. What a dumb gift. But mom still has it at home. Yay for good moms that hang on to our nonsensical gifts. Yes. Well, Alice also hears about the talent contest from her friend, Hetty Muskrat. And we've set up our gift of the Magi scenario. Alice wants to buy Emmett a fancy guitar with mother of pearl inlays that he was checking out the day before. 
and which is the reason they stopped in front of that music shop and had to watch that drum roll out of the door a hundred times. So yeah, he's getting that guitar after that. And the guitar is $40. So again, we're left to question like, how much money do these people earn? Yeah. I need to know the median income in Frogtown Holler. <laughs> we need some kind of, well, you know, PNC does that Christmas price index every year where they price out the gifts from the 12 days of Christmas because, you, you know, you still have people buying their loved ones Lords of Leaping every year. But Sure. That's what we need. It's the thing <laughs> they do every year. And it's very specific of what they pick. It's just like, all right, well, for the ladies dancing, let's pick the uh, from the Philadelphia Ballet. Let's pick, all right, how many to rent nine of you? Great. Well, we can't have a gift of the Magi story without some sacrifice. Ma wants to sing, but she needs to make a dress for her performance. So to get that fabric for that, she contemplates hawking Emmett's tool chest. Meanwhile, Emmett's friends want to start a jug band with him on washtub base, and an essential part of making a washtub base is a washtub and putting a hole in said washtub, and we're back. Right, so obviously it is a gift of the Magi scenario, except the original story was based on, like, it was just supposed to be, like, irony, like, oh, they did something nice, but they can't really use it. Whereas Ma, Otter, and Emmett are really just screwing each other over. <laughs> You're not wrong. Like it's it's not a... They really... They both make the wrong choice. <laughs> there are no heroes in this story. No. Except no lessons four. were learned. Yeah, well... <laughs> I think they kind of... Well, we have to get to that when we get to it. But I'll remember that. <laughs> Because at first, Emmett and his ma decide it's not worth losing something of great value to the other until Emmett comes home with a Christmas branch. I love the concept of a Christmas branch because it's not just because they're small animals. There's a whole backstory behind this where Pa vowed to bring home a whole Christmas tree, but he never had the heart to do it. And he said something like, because I didn't cut it down, the rest of that tree will still be alive in a hundred years. So only cuts off a branch and that's adorable. It is. Plus the added thing of them, as you said, being small woodland creatures and the subtext of the fact that they are very poor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know where this story is supposed to be set, but I'm from West Virginia. I'm from Appalachia. You know, my I have family that grew up very, very poor. So that little touch of them just having the one little branch to make a nice Christmas, that part really touched me. Yeah, it's it's like the Charlie Brown tree, except somehow not as sad. Right. Because they didn't buy it from a store. It's just, I got my own branch. This is Yeah. Mine. Absolutely. Well, speaking about Pa reminds Emmett that now that the river's frozen over, it's safe to use one of his few bequeathments, Pa's slide. And I'll let you describe the slide. <laughs> um, so... The slide is just sort of a, a rut that's been cut into a hillside. It kind of visually looks like an earthen slip and slide that they they slide down to onto the frozen <laughs> pond. Um, honestly, like if they were going to put out an outtakes, I would want it to be of this scene because oh yeah, <laughs> but, like they some of the choices with the the puppetry where they're just like literally sliding right smack into each other is <laughs> is pretty comical to watch. And in real life, we're. We're talking about a cut garbage bag stapled to the set for them to go sliding. Uh, yes. Or if you've seen the movie Rad, it's ass sliding. <laughs> Are you familiar with that movie? I am not. Okay. Well, um, I forget. It's it's someone who's really his most famous thing is this movie. But the love interest is Lori Laughlin from Full House before Full House, who teaches her the fun pastime of ass sliding. And it's just sliding. That's how sliding works. You sit in your butt. As opposed to face sliding. Right. No, you're just sitting down, but I don't know. Well, it's at this point, both parties think to themselves, Pa would have hocked that tool chest. Pa would have put a hole in that wash tub. So, of course, Pa would have done both of those things. Pa sold snake oil. Pa made bad choices. Yes. 
Um, but before we move too far into the scene, this this scene with the slide also is where some of that marionette puppetry comes out, and this is where the bad choices come in. <laughs> yeah, the slide scene, like, in juxtaposition of Kermit, like, seamlessly riding a bicycle, mm-hmm. it's it's the most, like, derp-de-derp-de-derp, like, marionette walking puppet. <laughs> yes. You can tell it's just like, you guys aren't on skates or even on the ice. <laughs> Your feet aren't even touching the ground. Right. This is the one part of the whole special where it doesn't feel like an actual place. Yeah, it, it's it's noticeably a little off, even though it is a sweet song, little scene. Uh, but then they take some time to sing Pa's favorite song, and it's When the River Meets the Sea. When the mountain touches the valley, all the clouds are taught to fly. Thus our souls shall leave this land most peacefully. And that's when the river meets the sea, not where the river meets the sea, like I kept accidentally typing while I'm typing out my notes here. Where the river meets the sea is just called a mouth. But I'll let you comment on this song before I say my bit. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm blanking a little bit on this song, aside from the line, when the river meets the sea. And I was trying to think of a funny joke about when that would be, but I'll let let you go ahead and jump in there. Well, apparently it's when you die. Oh. (laughs) I was not the, I was not the brightest boy. And I didn't realize when I was young that this song is about death and transitioning from this life to the next. Well, apparently I am not the brightest adult because I didn't know that either. Okay, well, this is the song on John Denver and the Muppets, the album. Uh, Robin sings it. Okay. Yeah, Robin sings it with John Denver. And here you have actually um, Alice Otter singing it instead of Jerry Nelson's character, which would have been strange because it's just like, hey, that's when I would have realized he's basically using his Robin voice here. He's obviously Jerry Nelson's kid voice. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to turn in my uh, obsessive millennial Muppet fan card because I actually have never seen nor heard the John Denver Muppet special. Well, the special, you see, I didn't see the actual special until years after I heard the album. The album was just a crucial part of my life growing up as a kid. My mom was a huge John Denver fan, and I guess they, my parents liked the Muppets enough or had younger nephews and nieces who liked the Muppets enough that... That was always a part of my life. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Somehow it was just a, a gap that I, I've never sought it out. I can say that my, my best friend hung it up, up, hung up the album, like the actual vinyl album, on her wall as a Christmas decoration. <laughs> and then <laughs> they, never, <laughs> they never got around to taking it down, so it is still on their wall five years oh, later. Perfect. Just, just year, year round, it's on the wall. I feel like every house might have that one Christmas decoration where it's just like, ah, keep it up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think what mine is. Oh, I'm staring at a little angel right now, actually. Just right here, next to me. Next to a picture of my wife and I, like the night we I proposed to her. Aww. But, which was not Christmas. I I moved this year, so everything did get put away, but I had like a, or I have, a, like a little plush Yukon Cornelius that just lived in my house. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, you know what? Yeah, there's a random... There, I had this set of Rudolph figurines that I got at one point, and I just never put them away. Uh, but we lost a few, and then every once in a while, while when the kids are cleaning up their toys, that they kind of just dump and play with what they have. We have so many little rubber action figures that they play with. Sure. And I'll find Rudolph and just like, hey, look, it's Clarice out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, hey, it's Charlie in a box that I've never seen you guys play with before, but he's in this bucket. Found him. <laughs> but uh, no, it wasn't until Jerry Nelson sings it along with Louise Gold at Jim Henson's memorial service in 1990. And that's when I realized, oh, this song's about dying. I don't know what I thought about this song when I was a kid, but it's both a Christmas song because it's associated with this special in John Denver. And it's not at all a Christmas song. I don't know. I guess we'll achieve peace on earth when the river meets the sea. Maybe that's what I thought. 
I know. Now I'm like furiously Googling it because I was like, how did I miss this? <laughs> our, as our souls will leave this land most peacefully. Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, the next day is Christmas Eve and Evan and his mom both leave a note for each other saying they'll be home late and they'll explain about the insert suddenly missing item of great value here when they get home and go off and get ready for the contest. Uh, Ma's already gone, but we see Emmett put a hole in the wash tub with this deafening, echoing blow. <laughs> and the sound here is just done so perfectly here to drive the home the severity of what, what he's doing here. And all that's missing was a flock of crows just suddenly flying away in alarm. <laughs> I was thinking it was like uh, the the Shawshank Redemption, where he's like, yes, <laughs> beating on the pipe with the thunderclap. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow this was louder than that, but well, it had the lightning. Yeah, see, that's what was missing. It was the lightning. Then we cut to Emin and his friends, the newly assembled Frogtown Hollow Jubilee Jug Band. So let's introduce the rest of the neighbors, uh, the rest of the neighbors, the rest of the members. We talked about Wendell. Then we have Harvey on kazoo and washboard. Uh, and this is clearly Jim Henson's voice. He does that. It's not a specific character, but I associate it with some anything Muppets I hear every once in a while. The best way I can describe this voice, it's a high pitched, more nasally Rolf. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. Okay. And finally, we have Charlie playing banjo made of a cigar box, and that's performed by Richard Hunt. He doesn't talk much. But now I found out we have a bit of a controversy here with Harvey and Charlie. In the source material, Harvey is identified as a muskrat, and Charlie is a beaver. But in the stage play based on the special, Harvey's a beaver, and Charlie's a muskrat. Uh, the special doesn't specify it at all because everybody just has a first name and nobody cares. But Harvey looks more like a muskrat to me here. I don't know. Still, Muppet Wiki's going with the musical names with the notes about each. So, yeah, I mean, they are both sort of just unidentifiable rodent-esque creatures. Yeah, they're interchangeable. They just needed some puppets to fill out the band. Yeah, there's an interesting thing in the whole special where... It's almost like a class distinction. There's more detail in the, like, fur and the costuming, like, for the richer characters. Mm. And with, I mean, obviously you know that Emmett and his mother are otters because you're told as much. And right. they do have little otter faces. But, like, some of the lower class characters, they, they just look like furry things. Yeah, they could have been so many different creatures. Like, it could have been prairie dogs, for all we knew. But Right, or, you know... Chuck the not bear. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. And he's like, the, the richer characters, it's clearly a fox and clearly a bullfrog. And Yeah, I mean, they are, they are much more uh, defined. Like, it's even, like, not only are they richer within the context of the special, but, like, more care was put into establishing them to make them look more defined. Yeah. To establish them as rich characters. So the jug band is practicing a song called Barbecue. This my spirit, I swear that it never fails. And the sauce mama makes just as in forever if you dare to get it under your nails. <laughs> I love barbecue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is another one where none of the songs in this are Christmas songs, but because they're in this, they become Christmas songs for me and anyone else who wants them to be. If this weren't so beloved by such a niche audience, these songs could be the diehard of Christmas music. Where we just argue about it forever, but everybody loves this, so it's just like, sure, barbecue is a Christmas song, why not? <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily associate it with Christmas, but I do think of it every time I eat barbecue. <laughs> and now so will I. <laughs> For some reason, I associate this with the new year more than I do. Christmas. I don't know why, because I guess since I moved down here to Florida, my wife got us in the habit of, well, it's New Year's, New Year's Day, we gotta eat those turnip greens. What? Huh? Black-eyed peas and turnip greens are apparently a New Year's Day thing, but I had never heard of that until I moved south. Um, we don't do that specific thing up here, but it is uh, some sort of pork product and cabbage. Okay. Cabbage I had heard of. 
which I always thought that was an Irish thing because they put cabbage in everything. But <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Did you find your line? <laughs> um I am looking for it. Although I did okay. find a line, it don't mean that you don't uh, got rhythm if you don't like rock and roll, which I love. Yes. I especially like it when they're playing, when the other guy's playing later at the contest and just a banjo. And it's just like, if you don't like rock and roll. Yeah, um, I always think of that. He's a, uh, what is he, a badger? Um, let's scroll down here. I know his name is Yancey. Yancey Woodchuck, here it is. I always thought that... Like, before I rewatched it just now, in my head, he's, like, a Bob Dylan facsimile. (laughs) I guess kind of. Yeah, I mean, he's not really. He's he's way more twangy than Dylan ever was. But Bob Dylan singing barbecue. There you go. I want that cover now. Oh, I did find my line. Okay. And the sauce mama makes just stays there forever if you dare to get it under your nails. (laughs) Oh, jeez. <laughs> I didn't know they had fingernails. But, yeah, that happens. But after a brief run-in with the Riverbottom Gang on snowmobiles, we cut to the Christmas talent contest, emceed by Mayor Harrison Fox, whose wife Gretchen uh, was the one who stiffed Alice on her laundry delivery earlier, and now she's one of three judges, uh, including... Local restaurant proprietor Doc Bullfrog, which we mentioned earlier and will mention again, and then the mostly silent James Badger, who looks like he belongs. Uh, he reminded me of the Badger in they did a Wind of the Willows kind of claymation TV series, and he looked like the Badger from that. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking there was a Badger in. Um... Fantastic Mr. Fox? Oh, yeah, could be. Was that maybe Bill Murray's character? Anyway, but yeah. I don't know if he has any lines, but apparently a badger is an an easy thing to uh, make identifiable. Yeah, and he's always got that same characteristics of he's, like, older and, and better off. Which I just found, oh, that's... Yeah, I forgot about Fantastic Mr. Fox. Wow, that's three things where badgers just kind of has the... He's in the same sort of social class, too. Strange. <laughs> well, you know, those badgers are doing well, even in this yes. economy. <laughs> uh, but the mayor is voiced by Jim Henson doing a variation of his Link Hogthrob voice, which kind of sounds like this, and this is a character he originated at home. So I have a quote here from Brian Henson, his son, saying, As a kid, whenever my dad did something... Some stereotypical fatherly chore like carving the Thanksgiving turkey, that would be the voice he would use. I guess when the character of I guess when the character of this pompous, not too bright pig came along, he figured, well, that voice would fit just perfectly. So now all I want to do is do this voice whenever I'm doing something like that. That's that's really awesome. The idea of him like in dad mode. Yeah. Doing his pompous voice. Now because, I'm trying. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, like sometimes you read things about Henson, like outside of work, and how he wasn't necessarily like the warm and cuddly guy that we all assume him to be. That he could be kind of standoffish, but you know, him putting on his funny voices for his kids to carve a turkey is a, a nice image. <laughs> yes. And now all it makes me want to do is like find excuses to make silly pompous dad voice. <laughs> I feel like with three kids, you will have more than enough opportunity. Oh, yeah. I'll find something tomorrow. <laughs> but good fit for a mayor and anyone who'd marry that fox. Yes. But let's talk about some of these other performances. We we have Yancey Woodchuck, who we talked about earlier, singing Barbecue. Not nearly as good as the Jug Band's version they were talking about later, but he goes on first. And the boys decide they need to think of something else to do fast. But then we have two halves of a horse doing a dance, but not together. Right. It's like they're they're forced to separate by gender to go to different rooms, and they just decide not to come back together for their act, apparently. <laughs> Which I think makes it better, but I guess the audience does agree. Doesn't agree with me. 
<laughs> my favorite part of the the horse is like the back half, I think, immediately falls down and the the act is just over. They're just like, well, we're done. <laughs> right. And then All if you the- want, they don't even stand up. They just slide off the stage. Nope, they don't even bow. There's no cane. There probably should have been a cane. <laughs> yes. Then we have two rabbits just jumping around the stage to piano music. And that's their act. You're rabbits. That's not impressing anyone. The most interesting thing of that is they're doing the like black background uh, puppetry mm-hmm. there. Which, you know, anybody that has seen Labyrinth, they they do the same thing with the, like, fire demon oh, yeah. things. I can watch that again. Like a black, I don't know, velvet background or whatever, and the, right. the, puppet, like, the puppeteers are sticking out through it to make the legs of the rabbit bounce around. <laughs> uh, then we have a group of... I think squirrels and what looked like tutus just flipping out and getting thrown around the stage by their puppeteers. This one's <laughs> my favorite because every time I watch it, I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. I still can't figure out. Like, I think it's supposed to be like an acrobatic thing. Like some of them are doing like somersaults. One of them is definitely just laying on the stage yeah. tail in the air presenting oh, just sort of, <laughs> Just sort of sliding around a little bit. There you go. <laughs> they have one enthusiastic uh, supporter in the audience, and then everyone else is just polite. But then I assume to- that to be their mom. I've always just assumed that was their very supportive mom. I hope so. Yeah, that makes sense. And then we get to Alice, who sings a sweet little song called Our World. We're closer now than ever before. There's love in our world and we're showing it more. Our world says, welcome stranger, everybody's a friend. Favorite stories don't end in our world. And I didn't mention yet, uh, but whereas Marilyn Sokol did her spoken lines to match Frank Oz's puppetry, for the music, she pre-recorded all the songs, and then Frank had to match his movements to her singing. I actually was wondering about that, like how how they made that work, like who was doing the dubbing or like who came first. Yeah, so a little of both, depending on whether they were singing or talking. And this is just a beautiful, beautiful song that goes, Our World Says, Welcome Stranger, Everybody's a Friend, I Want to Go Move to That World. Yeah, and the line after that, Favorite Stories Don't End, which is such a beautiful sentiment on its own, but also such a sort of beautiful meta statement for the Henson Company and the products that we've all loved since we were kids. It really is, but... We sing songs like this around Christmas time to convince ourselves we're working at goodwill toward everyone, but then we yell at each other about coffee cup designs. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're at T-minus, what, two weeks until the world gets angry about a coffee cup again? <laughs> yeah. Well, after Alice, the jug band is up now performing a song they made up on the fly called Brothers. How much alike we are, perhaps we're long-lost brothers, we Is it supposed to be implied that they just made it up on the fly, or that it was just another song that they knew? That's the impression I got. I'm not sure. It huh. makes a lot more sense now that I think about it, if it's, if it's an existing song. Um, <laughs> Brothers is a funny song because it's very catchy, obviously, because we're supposed to be engaged by it. Mm-hmm. But And again, it has that sort of tone of being something that, you know has been sung in their area for a hundred years, even though it's a brand new song. (laughs) But then if you look at the lyrics, uh, how much alike we are, perhaps we're long lost brothers. We even think the same. You know, there may be others. What's the implication there? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. (laughs) It's like 
have you heard about that documentary about the like they were triplets that were raised completely separately and then wound up at the same college? No, it's <laughs> that sounds like sister sister, but there are three of them. Yes, I just I love the idea of wow, we really have a lot in common. I bet we're related. I wonder how many other siblings we have. Yeah, every once in a while, you're here. Once every couple of years, though, you'll hear a story about that. It's just like reunited twins never knew they existed. Or it's just like these two people have the same first and last name and they married someone with the same first and last name. And they both have dogs named this. And it's just the world's weird, man. (laughs) This song is not as good as barbecue, but it'll do in a pinch, I guess. Uh, But for the short time they had to put it together backstage... They nail it to some hearty applause. Yes, it is is a fun little jug band tune. Mm-hmm. Jubilant, you might say. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and that's the talent contest. So it's just a matter of which one of our heroes is going to win. But wait! Normally, Mayor Fox says they wouldn't allow a last-minute entry, but these kids came all the way from Riverbottom, and he introduces with no hint of alarm or even intrigue in his voice... The Nightmare. <laughs> and out comes the Riverbottom Nightmare Band. <laughs> Shoving past all the other contestants as they drag all their instruments and sound equipment, and they even have light rigging onto the stage. We think what we want. We do anything that we wish. These are supposed to be the antagonists who show us what we're not supposed to do or be, and how not to treat thy neighbor, but I can't help but cackle at all of this. <laughs> all of it is amazing. Um, like, they're called the Nightmare. And the lyrics are implying like they're like just really bad dudes. But then it looks like this sort of acid funk monstrosity on stage <laughs> with, like, Chuck looks like uh, Elton John, I think, is kind of what's going on oh, there. Yeah. With some, like, yeah, he's on the keyboard, so it's definitely an Elton John. Well, that... Yeah, but with, like, Ziggy Stardust boots. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I had... I made a pinball wizard joke, so that makes sense now that we compare him to Elton John. I didn't make that connection. <laughs> but, yes, all of this is amazing, and if Jim Henson had any intention of showing us that emulating these guys would be a bad way to live life, he failed. Yeah, the idea that, like, <laughs> this is the idea of, like, the, the middle-aged men who were making this, and, like, oh, this is this is what a heavy metal band would say. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. They're so mean. I Part of me thinks that that wasn't the intention of all. And it was just like, Jim Henson was just like, this is going to be fun. Let's, let's do this. Let's make him be really cool and teach no one anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the, the great flaw in the special as much as I love it is, you know, it, not to spoil it. Cause you're going to get to it in a second, but they, they deserve their win that they oh, get. Oh, yeah. They get this thunderous applause and girlish screams from the crowd. Uh, and they're declared the winners by an impressed duck bullfrog who later finds Emin and his friends and his ma outside looking dejected. But Doc explains, well, the, ju- the judges were highly impressed with both of your acts, but agreed both were missing that special something. Which, of course, is bringing your own lighting rig. And a fish in an aquarium. Yes. No, but here's when Alice admits he hocked Emmett's tool chest and Emmett tells his ma he put a hole in his wash tub. And ma's the one who first says she knows she should feel bad, but she just doesn't. And that's what we were talking about earlier. And she's like, I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> well, I ain't even mad. Either one of us can make a living now. <laughs> Merry Christmas. That almost, almost wants me to want to find a reason to have to say that to my own kids. I hope it never has to come up, but it'd be funny if I just, if it came to that. (laughs) Sorry, kids, I slashed my tires. You're not getting anything for Christmas. (laughs) I did it to win a contest. Don't ask questions. (laughs) 
at least one of the kids would be like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not going to say which one. I'll let them figure it out. Well, on their way home, walking on an icy river, the other boys are singing their song. And this is when Ma realizes both of their songs would fit together nicely. Uh, so they start singing both Our World and Brothers at the same time. And they just happen to fit perfectly with each other. We're closer now than ever before. How much alike we are. Perhaps we're long lost brothers. There's love in our world and we're showing it more. We even think the same. You know there may be others. You didn't hear it before because the timing was different with the two songs when they were playing them on stage, but they certainly fit now. Yes, and and when put together, make more sense. It aren't a weird, long-lost sibling question mark song. Yeah, and watching this now, I don't know whether I had the hindsight to mess me up, but it was... it Brothers especially felt only like half a song. Yeah, absolutely. And like I think our world stands alone or stands on its own better. Way better. But but the two of them combined is clearly like mm-hmm. the way that it's supposed to be thematically and musically. Yes. Uh, but it sounds so great that as they pass the Riverside Rest Cafe, all the customers dock full bullfrog come out and listen and they get a huge ovation and dock the real MVP of this whole special. Not counting the Nightmare Band. Uh, says it appears what both acts needed were each other, so he offers them jobs at his restaurant. Um, and all that stuff I said about Gift of the Magi, forget it, everything turns out fine. <laughs> no lessons were learned and it just worked out. <laughs> but good on my Otter for immediately saying, now nah, wait a minute, is the pay regular when we play regular? Right. She's hard scrabble. There you go. She got screwed over by a fox. Yeah, not letting that happen twice in a week. Yeah. Uh, Dumb old Wendell just cares about the mashed potatoes yes. they're going to get for free. <laughs> Are there mashed potatoes? <laughs> and luckily for Wendell, there are mashed potatoes, and all the meals are on the house. And they can start that very same night, Christmas Eve, to a crowd of adoring onlookers including Kermit, who's now dressed in an orange turtleneck under a brown plaid blazer that absolutely had to have been made from a sofa. (laughs) Because I remember either my parents or one of my relatives had that, like, brown plaid sofa that's clearly from the 70s in one of our houses. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. I've seen a brown plaid or, like, corduroy... So, but yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure when it cuts to them, like, singing in the restaurant, isn't, is her name Henrietta Fox? I think it's Gretchen Fox. Oh, Hetty. Yeah, Hetty is, um, is, is Ma's friend. She's a muskrat. Gotcha. But I think the fox is in the crowd, like, in Doc Bullfrog's restaurant. Like, when it, uh, pans past everybody. I'm trying oh, to yeah? get there. I'm like, like, look, we ran out of puppets. Bring the fox back in. <laughs> she looks like Because I was thinking, come on, man. Like, two of y'all were judges. Couldn't throw him a little bone? To give it to the weird rock band? Yeah, well, again, lighting. <laughs> but finally, we end with the whole band and Alice reprising When the River Meets the Sea and roll credits, which, and I forget this every time I watch this. Uh, and only to rediscover it again. At the end, it says it was produced in association with Westfall Productions. Hey, that's me. I've never heard of them. <laughs> I saw that, too. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. I saw it. That's his name. <laughs> no. I have no idea who these people are. Uh, but it looks like they're based in London or were based in London. It actually doesn't look like they survived the 70s. And I don't recognize anything else they've done because they have an IMDb Pro page. Uh, but Emmett Otter's not even on there. Hmm. But what is on there is they did a TV movie version of Death Be Not Proud starring Robbie Benson, later the voice of Disney's The Beast. <laughs> uh, and the most recent thing listed there is a 1980 animated special called Last of the Red Hot Dragons that I've also never heard of. 
Their logo's a white horse, like on my family crest. We're the Artax family. Oh, for real? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not the Artax right. thing, but the family crest so. thing. Interesting. No idea who they are other than this, but any final thoughts on Emma Otter? Well, I'm going to respond with a question. Why do you think, because, I mean, you and I and several of our, like, internet friends fixate on a lot of these different Christmas specials, hence you making a podcast about mm. it. Um, but so all of us love Emma Otter pretty intensely, including our friend Bill, who we wanted to be on with us, but he wasn't able to do it. Mr. But Bill. <laughs> Bill love this podcast. Love you, man. Um, but I find that outside of our little internet friend circle, it's not as well. Like there are a lot of people that when you say Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, they're just like, no idea, just crickets. Why? Why do you think that it has such staying power amongst a certain subset of like? mid to late 30s well now like millennials now that we both established that we probably first saw it around our early teens on Nickelodeon I think we're just that right crowd who got into the Muppets at an early age and it was just we were cool with everything about them and we happened to watch this at the right time, on the right channel, and it was just like, oh, I've never seen this before. Let's watch this every year. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's true of a lot of these uh, Christmas specials that, you know, even as adults, we go back and watch over and over. It just, it's been sewn into the fabric of what the holiday even means to us. Yeah, and again, it was, we have the luxury of growing up in the time where VHS was new, so we're all just buying eight-hour blank tapes and filling them with things off the TV. And this is one of those where it's just on a tape with ten other things that are so random, but they're so much part of our Christmas because we got to put them on every year that we just, we don't want to let them go. And here I am with this podcast. <laughs> right. And I think we touched on the, the VHS tape thing in the claymation special that that I was on previously. But I th- I think that's a good point. Like we were kids in the, the VHS record everything on TV era and then became adults in the like internet era of intense nostalgia where nothing goes away anymore. And you can on the fly Google lyrics to a 1977 Muppet special. Yes. Y'all, our kids have no idea how lucky they have it. It's going to be interesting seeing them grow up and reach their 20s and try and look back and find these things and have no trouble at all finding any of this stuff. Whereas we had to really dig for it. Yeah, I mean, the evolution of nostalgia, I guess, will be really interesting. One, because everything seems to move so quickly that, like, people are nostalgic for what happened six months ago. But at the same time, like, nothing ever really goes away. And, you know, everything, like, every Christmas special that's been, you know, part of the cultural landscape for the last 50 years, you can just have it, plus the new stuff. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see, like, with, uh, like, your kids, you know, what they hang on to and whether it's informed by current pop culture or more by, like, this is the thing that my dad loves, and he watches it every year, so now we watch it every year, so now it's part of our Christmas as well. That is going to be interesting to watch. Because the kids are already clamoring to watch Nightmare Before Christmas again. So, But we nice. saved that one until after Halloween. We was like, no, this is the Bridge the Gap movie. Yeah, I do the same thing. That's my November oh, movie. Oh, good. <laughs> That's our November movie, and then the first thing we watch after Thanksgiving is Elf. Nice. Well, Emily, if people want to go sliding down a garbage bag with you, where can they find you on the internet? <laughs> sliding into my garbage bag DMs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just like a, a boring normie, but if you would like to read my tweets or look at pictures of my dog, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at M L E Rally, 
letter M, letter L, letter E. Uh, and thank you so much again for joining me. Pa would have loved this episode. <laughs> pa would have loved this episode. <laughs> so for Emily, from here at Doc Bullfrog's Riverside Rest, careful of the icy patch. We're closer now than ever before. How much alike we are. There's love in our world, we're showing it you more. You know there may be Everybody's a friend. Favorite stories don't end. Welcome to our world. And so Ma and Emmett and the boys started to make a little regular money and a lot of really fine music. And from then on, Christmas was a little merrier on the river. The Advent Calendar House is part of the Christmas Podcast Network, featuring shows like Can't Wait for Christmas by comedian and former Wipeout contestant Tim Babb, who also recently talked about Emma Dodder's Jug Band Christmas on his show. So please check out Can't Wait for Christmas and other shows just like this one at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. For now, here's what's coming up next time on the Advent Calendar House. The Pinky and the Brain is Pinky and the Brain. They'll have a merry gentleman singing this refrain that after Christmas Eve the world will believe. In Pinky, in Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain.